Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3, covering verses 10 to 17. I titled this morning's message, The Man of God and the Word of God. And last week, we looked at verses 1 to 9. I titled last week's message, Dangerous Times We Live In. And you might say that those nine verses that we looked at, that it was really speaking about men of the flesh. And today we're going to look at a man of God and the Word of God. But some of the things that we saw in verses 1 to 9 last week, it says in verse 2, Look at your Bibles there. It says, for men will be lovers of themselves. And really that's the biggest problem. Men will be lovers of themselves. It goes on and it, and it leads to this, lovers of money. And then look at verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look at verse 8. As Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. I shared that within these verses, there's a lot of people that sometimes leave the church out of the mix. And I think it's important for us as a church to realize that the days that we are living in, that they really are dangerous times. They were dangerous times back in Paul's day when he wrote this letter, but I would say it is increasingly becoming more and more dangerous for the church because there's more and more false teaching, false doctrines, and things that can lead even believers astray to cause the church to become a worldly church, to become a self-centered church. And God help us, Calvary Chapel Fellowship, that we would never become men and women of the flesh. That we wouldn't live like the world. That we wouldn't be a church that people be looking at going, can't tell the difference. I can't see the difference. I ended last week's message saying that we're going to look today at how we can protect ourselves from dangerous times that we live in. How do we do that? We start this morning in verse 10 with another contrast. Remember I talked about contrast and those words that lead into a contrast? Paul starts with another but in verse 10. And it's because he's going to contrast between these men who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and he's going to contrast it with the Apostle Paul's life, his own life and his own ministry. What a contrast. Look at what it says in verse 10. This is Paul's life. This is Paul's ministry. He was, and he is the example that we read of here, of a man of God. He says in verse 10, he says, But you, Timothy, 
in contrast to those men of the flesh that we read in the verses prior. But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which have happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? You can keep yourself from suffering persecution, by the way, if you don't live godly, if you don't live for Christ, if you're not out there with your faith, you'll skate through life with very little, if any, persecution upon your life. Paul gave another contrast back in his first letter in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then here's another one of those buts. He says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. What a contrast. Paul then gives Timothy in this 10th verse here, he he gives him seven more character qualities, we might call them, of a godly man. The man that's being spoken of here is the Apostle Paul. He says, but you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Philip's translation reads it this way, but you, Timothy, have known intimately both what I have taught and how I lived. My purpose and my faith are no secrets to you. You saw my endurance and love and patience. Notice, you saw, Timothy, these things in me. In the Greek text of what we're reading here this morning, in the Greek text, the seven things that we see listed here in verse 10, they're actually preceded by a repeated emphasis of the word my. Notice he says, my doctrine. But in the Greek text, it actually reads this way. My doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, and my perseverance, Timothy. You have carefully followed these things that you have seen in me. What a testimony of a godly man. Somebody that's worth following. Somebody that we might look at and go, I would like to be like that. It's been said that the best kind of Christianity is not only taught, it is also caught by seeing it lived out 
in other people. Seeing it lived out in our lives. God help me that I would be that kind of Christian that somebody would actually want to follow after me. Follow in the same way that I'm following Christ. James 2.18 reads this way, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What a difference. It's one thing to say we're a Christian. It's one thing to use all the Christian language. And it's another thing to live the things that we say. To actually be doers of the Word and not hearers only. But I have a question for all of us this morning. Who are you following? Do you have anyone in your life Another Christian, another brother, another sister in Christ that you're following? Do you have an example in your own life to follow? And here's another question. Do you even want to have an example? That's a big question. Do you even want to have an example to follow? Some of us might think that following a man is not something that we should do. Because, you know, we're not supposed to follow, out, follow men. We're supposed to follow Christ, aren't we? We're supposed to be followers of Christ, not followers of men. Christ, Jesus Christ, is our ultimate example. He's the one we're called to follow. We're, we're called to, to walk like He walked. In 1 John uh, chapter one, ver, uh, or chapter two, verse six, it says, "He who says that he abides in Jesus ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked." That's our ultimate goal. It's what we should aspire to—to be like Christ, to die to self, so that I might be more like Christ in my example to this world. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says this to the church, to the believers there. He says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. He says, imitate me. And the word imitate can also be translated, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul said it again in 1 Corinthians 4.16, He says, therefore, I urge you, or I beg you, brothers and sisters, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you, and listen to this, he will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere and in every church. You see, God has raised up great examples throughout church history. Men and women that have led by example that we could say we read their books, we see all these things in their life, even current day Christians that are around and say, I would like to be like that. I would like to pattern myself. And you know why that helps us? Because when we compare our walks to Christ, we, man, look how far short I am. 
of being like Christ. But that's my ultimate goal. But isn't it great to see how God can take a man or a woman that has flesh and blood like you and I and look at the, the, the wonderful things that God does in their life. How He changes them. What He's done. The power that's in their life. God, help me that I might be like that. Timothy, I believe, saw the power of God in Paul's life. He saw a changed life. Unlike those men of the flesh that we read of in verses 1-9, to where it says that they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. They looked like Christians. They talked like Christians. They went to church. They did all these things, but they denied the power. It wasn't really evident in their life. It happened inside the walls. But outside the walls, it was completely different. It was different in the home than it was here at church. That's what we need to guard ourselves from. But here's another question that might even be more thought-provoking than the first one. If someone knew you were a Christian, would they see anything in you or anything in your walk that they would want to follow? What a question. Is there anything about you? It takes some soul searching, doesn't it? Is there anything about my walk that somebody would want to pattern themselves after? That's a big question. It's, It's one we should ask ourselves. Are we leading by example with our life? Paul said to Timothy in his first letter, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Timothy, he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Timothy had become also a good example. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He followed the example of the Apostle Paul. He became that right-hand man to the Apostle Paul. But he himself also became a good example of a Christian. A good example of a man of God. The old saying we become like the people we associate with is so true. You hang out with people that are of a corrupt mind, people that are living this way but calling themselves a Christian, doing this, doing that, in time you will become that also. It's who you associate with. It's who you spend most of your time with. We're to go into the world and be around the world. We're, to, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But we don't associate to our detriment. We want to be around people to be a witness, to be a light. But not to allow the things of this world to drag us on the same course that they're on. In this second letter, Paul says it again to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine. The first letter, 
where Paul made those same words to Timothy about following his doctrine, that letter was written three to four years before the second letter. Here Paul is saying it again to Timothy. Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine. In other words, Timothy, you continued on. You see, it's not how we start, it's how we finish. And are we in for the long haul? Are we in for the long race? Are we looking to the finish line as Christians? And we're not going to stop and we're not going to get out of that lane. We're not going to get off to the sidelines. We're going to continue to run our race and run that course. Timothy was continually following after and following in the footsteps that he saw in his mentor, the Apostle Paul. It's sad to say that statistically, there will be some of you, even in this room, even here today, who will not finish your race well. Statistically, that would probably be the case. Some of you might stop following good doctrine because you got caught up into something that sounded good to your ear. Well, it makes sense to me. Sounds good, I like that. And you get off course and you get off into bad doctrine. And even more sad than that, some of you may stop actually walking with Christ. That should be enough to cause us to, to get a little bit nervous inside. To be able to say of ourselves, you know what? I have the capacity to fall away. God's the one that keeps. He's the one that can draw us back. He's the one that can forgive and we can return and be restored. He's a God of restoration. But God help me that I'll run the course, stay the course, continue to run. Sticky pages. I want to... Take some notes. I want you to take some notes about these character qualities that we see in a godly man. Or a, we'll say a godly woman. You know that when we say a godly man, we're speaking to you women too. A godly man or a godly woman is not a church building. It's not the church building that makes us godly. It's not in all of that, you know, it's who you are as an individual Christian. And even if you're married, you could have one that is walking and one that's not. Or you could have both of them that are not. Or both of them that are are. We all stand individually before the Lord, whether you're married or not married. Paul says, you have carefully followed my doctrine." Timothy, that doctrine, remember, that word means teaching. You have followed my teachings, Timothy, or you have followed my instructions or my precepts, those things that I invested in you, Timothy, my son in the faith, somebody that I discipled, somebody that I spent time with. You have taken on 
and followed my teaching. You've carefully followed after these things, which means that Timothy not only followed, but he followed close. The word actually means somebody that is following at another person's side. Kind of like that father that's walking with his child and he's so proud as that son or that daughter is just walking in step and walking at his side. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.13 exhorted Timothy. He says, Till I come, Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Timothy, the churches in Ephesus there, they need sound doctrine. Timothy, keep teaching the Word. Keep preaching the Word, Timothy. Paul also says, Timothy, you have followed my manner of life. In other words, you have followed my conduct, Timothy. You have watched the way I walk. You have watched the way I've handled myself in situations for the gospel's sake. You have watched how I've handled myself, my conduct under persecution. You've seen the character within me, Timothy. You have followed that pattern. He's commending Timothy for that. Paul says, Timothy... Don't just follow the things that I teach, though, but follow the things that I do. Oh, that's important, isn't it? Don't just follow the things that I teach from this pulpit, I should be able to say, but follow the things that I do. That's what you should be able to say. Not just the things that I teach my children, but the things that I do in my Christian walk as a parent. He says, follow my manner of life. Follow the way that I lead my life. It's been said that people don't often listen to the things we say. They listen to the things we do. I read something else from someone that said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather see the sermon than to hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely point the way. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. To actually see it in action. Paul, Timothy, they were men of action. They they put their hand to the plow and they got out there and they were busy about their Lord's work. Paul goes on to say to Timothy, you have followed my purpose. That word purpose there is, it's a, it's a setting forth of a thing. It, it's, it's like placing something in, in view of someone. Like the showbread that was placed on the table inside the tabernacle as those 12 loaves were laid out on the table for a purpose. Paul, in a sense, is saying, 
This is what my life is about. This is my purpose, Timothy. Follow my purpose. Follow my manner of life. Uh, Follow my showbread, we could say. As I live my life in front of you, you know my purpose, Timothy. You know what I'm here for. You know what I'm about. And you, you know those things. You see, purpose and heart is what should be our purpose in life. What's going on in your heart will affect your purpose in life. Why did God create you? Why did you come into this world? Why did He save you? What purpose does God have for you? Paul says, my purpose in life has been set before you openly. It's in full view for you to see, Timothy. You've seen it. You've walked with me at my side. We have ministered together, Timothy. In Paul's life and ministry, it was made clear from the very beginning to the Apostle Paul Remember when he got saved and he was blinded and he went into that city in Acts chapter 9 and it says, and the Lord spoke to a man by the name of Ananias. And he said, I want you to go to Saul, who would be later called Paul. He is a chosen vessel of mine. This is what was being said to Ananias. Saul is a chosen vessel of mine. This is what God is saying to him. He's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Saul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He even told Ananias the things that Paul was going to do and and how his purpose that he was even going to suffer for his name's sake. You see, God has a purpose for all of us. He knows your course, your path, how He wants to use you in this world for the furtherance of the Gospel, for the furtherance of the Kingdom of God. He knows what He wants to do. Do you know your purpose? Ultimately, our purpose is to glorify God. That I would glorify Him with my life. And everything that I do out of my life would bring and point to glorify Him. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Why? Because God had called him to preach the gospel. To take the gospel message to this Gentile world. Woe is me if I don't do what God has called me to do. Do we have that same kind of concern and care for what we are doing with our lives, our walks with Christ? In 1 Peter 2.21 we read, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His footsteps. That's a general word to each one of us. 
You see, we're not above our master, are we? We're called to go out and be witnesses. We're called to give it up for Christ. However that looks like to you, however that practically plays out in your life, we're not all Apostle Pauls. We're not all Timothys. And that's okay. You're who you are and who God made you. And He will give you the task that He's... We just need to be obedient to what God has called us to do. Matthew Henry comments that on this verse, he says, what he's saying to Timothy, he says, Thou hast known my purpose, what I drive at, how far it is from any worldly, carnal, secular design, and how sincerely I aim at the glory of God and the good of the souls of men. That's his analysis of this verse. He says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my faith. It could also be translated, my faithfulness, my trustworthiness, which speaks something more of Paul's character. Somebody that can be relied upon. You know, that's such a big thing. Are you reliable? Can people rely upon you? And Paul says, my faith, Timothy, you have followed that. Timothy, remain faithful. You've seen it in me. Timothy, I exhort you to remain faithful. Paul said this of the church at Thessalonica, those brand new believers that were there in that church. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. They heard about it. Paul did. Timothy came back with that report to the Apostle Paul. says, Paul, they put their idols away. Paul, they're, they're serving the living God. Paul, they're even under persecution and they're steadying on. Lord, Paul, their work of faith, it's evident. I can see that their faith is working. It's a real faith. Paul says, you have carefully followed my long suffering or my patience or my endurance. You followed. Timothy, being a minister, it requires a person to have a long fuse. You see, to be a minister of Jesus Christ, you can't be short on temper. You can't be a person that just quickly gets irritated at people. It doesn't work so well as a pastor. You've seen my long suffering, Timothy. You've seen my patience when I've been up against the wall with people. You've seen the endurance in me. Timothy, you have carefully followed my love. That word there, love, is that unconditional agape love. That supernatural love that comes from above that has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That love that 
dwelt and lived inside of the Apostle Paul, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you have carefully followed the love that I have had for people in my life. You've carefully followed that. There's a couple of verses that give me some insight into this supernatural work of God in the life of a mere man. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying when I say this. My conscience also bears witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, I needed to back it up with all that by telling you I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have this great sorrow and this continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, I have, that I were anathema, that I were to be condemned from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Could any one of us honestly say that? Even about our neighbor that we just don't like. They don't like us and I don't like them. But that I could be anathema if it meant them coming to Christ. Wow. Who can do that? Who can say that with sincerity and really mean it? It's only the love of Christ that has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that would enable any of us to give up our life in that way. Romans 10.1 Paul wrote, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that it might be saved. I labor in prayer for this. I want my brethren, my countrymen, my fellow Jews, I want them to come to know Christ, to know Him as Messiah. It's my heart and prayer. He also says to Timothy, Timothy, you have followed my perseverance, my steadfastness, my endurance, my consistency. The word actually literally means to be bearing up under to for, uh, with fortitude, with endurance. In other words, even when things got tough, even when things were difficult and persecution was heating up in those various cities, Paul remained steadfast. His walk of perseverance was an example. Do you know anyone like that that you're trying to follow? Somebody that is with perseverance in difficulties in hard times is continuing on. So often I feel like giving up. But God, you strengthen me when I see this brother, I see this sister that wants to continue to steady on. It's an encouragement to me. Timothy, you have carefully followed my perseverance. Timothy, my walk, my perseverance, let it be an example to you. As we read through this list of these, we call them character qualities of a godly man. You would think that a person with this kind of character would be a person that would be really liked. 
that he be loved, that he be respected by many, if not everyone. I mean, you would think, wouldn't you? Those who live for God and they, they live for other people, they speak truth, they live what they preach, they have a selfless purpose in life, their faithfulness is part of their character, their long-suffering and their patience with people, laying down their lives for others, loving people unconditionally for the gospel's sake, showing perseverance in hard times. What is it about a person like this that people, and, and I want to add religious people, that they would want to bring persecution against a man like that. Why? To bring affliction. That word affliction is sufferings. To bring sufferings against a man or a woman that lived with that kind of character around people. Yet he was persecuted greatly for the gospel's sake. Timothy, I also want to remind you about the persecutions that happened to me. In verse 11, look at your Bibles. Persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution, by definition, means to chase, to pursue after someone. It literally refers to a chase or a pursuit. Figuratively, it means to put someone to flight or to pursue with repeated acts of enmity against them. Persecutions. Afflictions have to do with the afflictions of the flesh. You know, beaten with rods three times, stoned. You know, those things that actually hurt the flesh. That's afflictions. Persecutions and afflictions which happen to me in these cities. But here in this letter, Paul is reminding Timothy about what had happened to him in these three cities. And the one city, Lystra, that's listed there, that was the hometown for Timothy. That's where he grew up. In Acts chapter 13, verse 15, or verse 50, excuse me, we read concerning Iconium. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them, and then they came to Iconium. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's from Antioch. They came into Iconium. 
And so here we see these Jews, these religious people, stirring up the devout and the prominent women of the city to come up against them, to come up against their message, what they say and what they stood for. And they simply had to shake the dust off of their feet, so to speak, and move on to the next city. At Iconium, in Acts chapter 14, verse 4, it says that the, but the multitude of the city was divided. They parted, uh, part sided with the Jews and the other part with the apostles. And it says, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and to stone Paul and Barnabas, to abuse them and to stone them, they became aware of it and were told that they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. So they got out of town. They come into Lystra, which was this hometown of Timothy. And possibly it was during this time, this is on Paul's first missionary journey, that he's with Barnabas traveling. He has not yet led Timothy to a saving faith. And it's possibly during this time that Timothy might have witnessed the miracle that Paul did in his own city. And also the persecution that came as a result of it. Here's Timothy, a bystander, looking and seeing Paul. In Acts chapter 14, verse 8, it says, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard the Apostle Paul speaking, and Paul observed him intently. And seeing that he had faith to be healed, he said to this man with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And we're told that he leaped and he walked. It's possible that Timothy saw this miracle. He witnessed this miracle that was taking place. But then we read in verse 19, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium, those two cities that they were at before this city, before Lystra, they also came there having persuaded the multitudes and then we're told they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead. He was stoned for healing a man, making him well. He was lame from birth. He was stoned for that. These religious leaders were threatened. People were following. That's what religion will do to people. And then Paul says to Timothy in verse 12, he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Timothy, you know what persecution that I've been in that I've endured. And Timothy, I, I want to encourage you with this because you have a road ahead of you. I'm currently sitting here in this Roman prison 
I'm really on my deathbed right now. My, my time is coming to an end. I'm drawing to an end right now. Timothy, you got to continue that race. you got to continue to take the gospel out to this world. And Timothy, you need to know and you need to remember that if you desire to live godly, you will also suffer persecution, Timothy. He says in verse 13, I want you to know this, Timothy, but evil men and imposters, they're going to grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Isn't that encouraging, Timothy? (laughs) You know, they're going to grow worse and worse. And as I shared last week, don't let people tell you things are going to get better. It's not a popular message from the pulpit to tell people things are going to get worse and worse. And you go, what do you mean worse and worse? I mean, where's your positive attitude? I mean, things surely that can get better than this. If we, if we just hunker down as a church and get busy about things, surely can get better. No. That's not what I see in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, things are going to grow worse and worse. How do we protect ourselves from the evil days that we're living in? From the false doctrines that are out there? We need to be men and women of character. We need to know the Word of God. We need to hold true to it. That's the answer. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. They're going to be deceiving people. Deceiving even those in the church. And being deceived themselves. Paul never gave false hope. We shouldn't give false hope to somebody that's a brand new Christian. Oh, everything's going to be better. You give your life to Christ, but I'll tell you what, man, your life's going to turn around. You know these bills you're having a hard time with? No more. You know, God wants us to be His, we're His children, man. God will take, you know, you won't have any suffering. You won't have any. Hmm. Don't give false hope. Paul had a different perspective about suffering for Christ in the Gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 1.4, we read, "...so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation to those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul lived in the real world. He lived in a world that he knew there was a spiritual battle that was raging for the souls of men and women. And he never gave people false hope. It's going to cost us to follow Christ. It's going to cost us something to be a witness for Christ. And that hasn't changed. 2,000 years later, Christians are still making a stand for Christ. And then others are shrinking back. 
Others are going into hibernation because they don't like the difficulties that come along with making a stand for Christ, making a stand for moral issues. Morality in our world is gone. It's going. It's gone. And if you make a stand for any one of the current issues that are on the table, you're going to be... You're going to get it. That's, it'll just come. But look what's going to happen to those on that day when God returns and God repays. Do you think Paul lived with that mindset? Hey, the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. It's worth it all. I count myself worthy to suffer for Christ. Could we even get to that place in our walk with Christ? Could we even individually get to that kind of mindset? So how do we guard ourselves from deceivers and imposters? Those who teach false doctrine? Those that bring half-truths? those who bring in health and wealth doctrines and all these various kinds of things that are out there, they bring in full-on lies right into the pulpit, right into the church. Full-on lies, half-truths, all, all these things. How do we protect ourselves from these deceivers and these imposters? Paul tells us how we do that. We've already looked at the man of God, the character of of a man or a woman. That in itself is your defense. Another defense that you have is the Word of God. Look at verse 14. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't tell us in this verse specifically who Timothy had learned from. We know that the Apostle Paul discipled him and taught him many things. But it's probably some of his learning came from the other apostles or disciples. But he also had a mom, Eunice. He also had a grandmother, Lois. And from an early age, <clears throat> they were instructing Timothy in the things of God from the Scriptures, the Old Testament of the, at that time. Learning truth and being assured of truth is a growing thing. It's a lifelong thing for all of us, isn't it? Growing in truth. Being assured of the truths that you know is a lifelong endeavor as a Christian. We need to grow in it. We need to stick with it. We need to realize this is what will protect us from all of those things that are false that are out in the world. But I also want to say to any of the parents that we have here this morning with young children that you have just a window of time 
you have a window of time with your children. That window of time is really short. And you need to invest as a parent, as parents, in your children, God's Word. Don't leave it to the church. Don't, don't leave it to the Sunday school teachers. You have a responsibility to invest in your children. You have a responsibility to that. And Paul tells Timothy, from your childhood, you have known the scriptures. That happened long before he was even saved. His mom and his grandmother were instilling within him the scriptures. God had a plan long planned out, didn't he? Verse 15, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word of God will lead our children to Christ. That's not a responsibility of the church. It's not a responsibility of me to lead your children to Christ. It's a responsibility of each parent that's here to not only teach your children the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, but also to lead them to Christ. Don't leave it to the church. And don't be one of those parents that says, you know what, hey, my parents let me make that decision when I wanted to make it. Don't, don't buy into that. You know, when they get older, they can make their own decision. Don't buy into that. We have a responsibility to lead them to Christ. When they come to that age of accountability, share with them the gospel. Ask them, you know, to receive Jesus Christ into their heart. Lead them to Christ. Don't leave it to the church. Disciple them. Lead them to Christ. Teach them the word of God. We need to guard ourselves from evil men, imposters and deceivers, and bad teachers, crooked teachers, false teachers. And the way that you're going to do that, know your word. How many of you picked up the word of God this week? How many of you opened it up and spent time in it? You need to spend time in the Word of God if you want to know the Word of God. If you know it, and the more you know it, the less you're going to have chance of being deceived. If you take it lightly, and then you hear things that tickle your ears, and that sounds good to you, and you get led astray, like we've already been warned in Timothy, it's because you weren't a good Berean and a good student of the Word of God. How valuable is it to you that you get in and know your word and know it well? I shared with you a couple weeks ago that Christians that know their Bible well are Christians that are, it's very difficult for those imposters and deceivers to deceive you. Because when you hear something, you go, that's not in the word of God. Hey, show me where that is. I never heard that before. Where'd you get that? That I don't see in God's Word. 
How about if you don't know if it says it? Oh, that sounds good. Sounds like they're saying the same thing. You know, those Jehovah's Witnesses, they come to my door and they, they're using the same lingo that we use. The Mormons, all the group. You know what? There's a lot of Christians that have been led astray. Look at verse 16 and 17. We'll finish with this. These verses will be ones that you would want to underline and highlight in your Bible. Very important verses for what they say. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice that it says all Scripture. All Scripture means all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament that was written at the time and then later came to be 66 books of the Bible. And today we say all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God. All Scripture. Not some of it. There are, believe me, there are some, and many, I'm going to say, within the church. I'm going to say many right now. Many within the church that do not believe that all of the Word of God is a Word from God. Many. Not just a a few of them out there. Of course we all believe. No, not all. As a matter of fact, I'll read you something. You know, Billy uh, Franklin Graham is going to be doing a tour starting here in North Carolina. Some of you might be aware of it. This is what he wrote on his little uh, brochure that he mailed to the churches. According to the Pew Research Center, the majority of North Carolinans say that right and wrong should be based on things like human reasoning and science instead of the Bible. Even many churchgoers influenced by secular values say that they do not believe the Word of God to be taken literally. That's a survey. You take it for what it's worth. But there are many Christians that do not hold to the fact that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does he say by that? What that word inspiration means is it means God breathed or the breath of God. In other words, that the men that wrote the Scriptures, every word was breathed into their heart by the Holy Spirit. And they wrote down word for word as the Holy Spirit directed them to write. That it came from the breath of God. And what we have in hand, every word, every book of the Bible, all of it is God-breathed. It's God's Word to you and I. That is not even a popular message today. That's what's sad. When you are convinced as a Christian that every word you read in your Bible has significance and power and can change you, then you're going to read your Bible, you're going to open that Bible up, and you're going to go, God, would you speak to me? How about if you only believed half of it? Oh God, now I've got to figure out what part is really from God, and what part's from man, and you know, I don't know. 
I don't know if we can even trust this thing. That's what it'll lead to. You either believe it all or you don't believe any of it. Every word. And every word is infallible. Every word was given by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20 says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any, any man's private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? There's no private interpretations. I don't make God's Word say what I want it to say. I don't, I don't approach it and go, you know what? Well, to me, let me tell you what I say that it says. No, what's God's Word say? I need to get in line with what He says. What the Holy Spirit says. It, it, it doesn't mean that I can go, well, that's your interpretation, and that's yours, and you know what? Well, hey, you know, they're all... No. There's one. There's one answer. There's one interpretation. There's not many, and yours is as good as mine, and let's just all throw them into the hat. And... No, that's not. Every word of God that we read, we as Christians need to be the Berean to determine what is God saying from His Word, not what I want to make it. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it also tells us this, it's piercing. Have you ever been pierced by God's Word? It's piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. In other words, the Word of God will get down to the very nitty-gritty of who you are. It'll call you out in the most smallest thing that you think you could run away from. That's what the Word of God will do. If you read it, it'll have its way in you. If you want to take it in, it'll do a work in you. It's also a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's a a big one. Well, I don't even know my own heart sometimes. I don't even know what, you know what I mean? But God's Word will reveal that. It's profitable for doctrine. Remember the word doctrine is translated teaching. It's profitable for teaching. Sound teaching or sound doctrine is good teaching. And good teaching is profitable. If you have someone that's teaching you the Bible, taking you through the Bible, it's good teaching, it's sound teaching, it'll be profitable to you. How about if they're not? How about if they just read a verse and then they, you know, walk around on stage and talk for 45 minutes? No. It's probably not going to be profitable. It might make you feel good when you leave, but it won't be lasting. From good teaching, we learn important truths about salvation, about justification, sanctification, sin, forgiveness, freedom from sin, knowing the real Jesus through the Word of God, the purpose of the church, prophecy and future things, heaven and hell. We learn about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, angels. We learn about man. And these are just some of the doctrines and the truths that we find in the Word of God. 
If I asked you one of those things and said, give me a whole commentary on what you can tell me about heaven and base it on the Word of God, would you have anything you could go to? Would you have one verse that you could just skim to and go, let me show you that? That's what we need to be. Be people that know our Word and know these truths. When Paul gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God, and then he says this, and to the word of his grace. I'm going to give you, I'm leaving you guys, I've been here three years. I'm going to commend you to God, and I'm going to commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's what God's word will do. God's Word is described as a sword. It's also our critic and our judge. It's our lamp. It's our light. It's our mirror. It's rain, snow, and water. It's food. It's bread. It's gold. It's silver. It's fire. It's a hammer. It's seed. It's honey. It's honeycomb. And you know each one of those things? And I don't have time to get... There's a Scripture that backs up all of those. That's God's Word. It's for reproof. In other words, it brings things to light. Jeremiah 23.29 says this, Is not my Word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? Look how he describes his word. And he's talking about the effect that it has on our, on our life. It's been said that reproof will tell you where you are, when you are out of bounds. It's like an empire who cries out, you're out, or you're safe. It tells you what sin is. It tells you what God wants for your life. It provides standards for you to live by. Reproof is the light that shines in the dark closets of your heart. But unlike the light in the closet, the light of God's Word enables one one to correct or to set straight that which is broken. That's what the Word of God will do. When we open it and we willingly say, God, would you speak into me? Would you change me? It's for reproof. And it's also for correction. Correction means to make straight again. Once all crooked. And now it's made things straight again. It's it's straightening things up again. It's a word that speaks of restoration, correction. It's turning you around to a proper place and a condition. Man, I've gotten off course. Man, I've gone to, you know. And the Word of God, I, I, I read it, and it was like it jumped off at me, and the Holy Spirit was saying, you've got to get back on course. It's for correction. God's Word doesn't just point to those things that are wrong in our lives, but it tells us how to get things right. Tells us what to do. Here's a verse that has reproof and correction in it. Ephesians 4.28 Let him who stole steal no longer. That's reproof. 
but rather let him who him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need that's correction reproof and correction in one verse the question that we have to ask ourselves of why maybe we don't pick up the word of god is are we afraid of the reproofs and the corrections that we might find. What will keep us from those deceivers, those imposters, those dangerous days that we're living in as I described it? Be a godly man or woman and know your word. And if you can do, and if I can do those two things, just think, what what would happen if I, if I just, those two things, there's not much that this world can do against you. It, it won't have its way with you. You will live a victorious life in Christ. You will. Will you have hardships? Yeah. Will it be difficult? Yeah. But you know what you'll do? You'll stand on the Word of God. You'll stay the course. You'll do what God's called you to do, no matter what. That's what having that character of a godly man or woman will do for you. That's what God's word will do for you if you are convinced that it's God's word that I need. Convinced of it. May the Lord speak into our hearts this morning individually where we're at when it comes to these two things. That we would take serious this message, the things that are being, we would take serious this message. Because I'll tell you what, your, your walk going forward, my walk going forward in these days that we're living in, I'm telling you right now, I believe things are going to get worse, possibly even a lot worse before the Lord returns. He could come back today. Praise the Lord if he does. But if he doesn't, if, he's, if he delays a year, what is this place going to look like a year from now? That's getting scary now, isn't it? As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We need to be ready. So let's all stand.